house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. My grandmother and her friends have been part of a quilting bee. Is this something you're making for the state fair? It's your wedding quilt, honey. Here comes the bride. Why can't we love as many people as we want in a lifetime? What's your name? I mean, monogamy is really a very unnatural state. I brought these for you. Have you been talking to your fiancé about any of this? You're getting cold feet. You see that same look your mother gets when she's gonna dump one of her boyfriends? Dad, look. I never liked fool They give people an excuse to do foolish things. I'm young. I'm supposed to do foolish things. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that casts Tobey Maguire as the selfless good brother and Jake Gyllenhaal as the brother who should be in jail and not the other way around somehow. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joseph. Hello. I've that... stitched a little square of well, telling autopsy our story. stitching. I'm trying to stitch together a really, really bad Maya Angelou impersonation. Oh no! That was my like Joseph. <laughs> it's like Maya Angelou by way of Monet Exchange by way of. Uh, <laughs> if any Ms. of these Cleo. hoes try to come for me, <laughs> I surely will cut thee. I will not hesitate to put thou in a ditch. Because Maya Angelou ain't no punk bitch. <laughs> that was such a good... Nobody talks about that Snatch Game One of the most fiercely underrated Snatch Game performances is Monet Exchange as Maya Angelou. Ugh. Anyway. Who had tried to do Maya Angelou and did, did her really poorly? I don't... Th- Didn't somebody? I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for not knowing this right off the bat, but I don't think anybody tried to do that, at least in Snatch Game. I think think maybe Latrice had toyed around with doing Maya Angelou. That makes sense. I just truly beyond any circuit. This, I mean, this is just a curveball. Has nothing to do with Maya Angelou. But like when we're if we talk about Snatch Game, how has Miss Cleo never been done on Snatch Game? Well, that was one one that I I know somebody tried. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, Chichi Devane used tried to do Maya Angelou. Yeah. Oh, that's right. But it was bad. And it was bad. That's what I mean. There was a really bad one. She looked like your grandma in her house coat. Remember that? She had that like yes. pastel yes, sort of like. Yes, and she just like waved and nodded. Oh, she boy. was going to rely on the look. That was tough. Yeah. No, somebody tried to do Miss Cleo and I feel like was was made to think think better of it by RuPaul, maybe? Possibly. Hold on. Well, no, Shangela was going to do it, but she couldn't do the accent, and it was bad. That's what it was. And then she ended up doing Jennifer Lewis, right? Yes. Jennifer Lewis. Um, I think my Snatch Game would have to be Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream. I just want to be on the television. That's fantastic. Mine is um, Tracy Ullman in the Meryl Streep AFI tribute. 
Oh my god. Where she just says, you're really gonna get second billing on this one, Trace. You also do a really great um, what is it? Is it Ingrid Bergman doing some oh Oscar ceremony? Oh, yes! The, when she announces the tie between yep. Barbara Streisand and Catherine Hepburn in The Lion in the Winter. The winner, it's a tie. The winners are Catherine Hepburn in Lion in the Winter and Barbara Streisand. I love that. I love that whole thing so much. That'll be mine. Yes, that will be my Snatch Game. I think another good Snatch Game, since we're talking like mid-90s and women, would be Alanis Morissette. But like the only characterization you do for Alanis Morissette is like you speak perfect plain English sentences, but you do it in her weird cadence of like... Where she's just listing things all the time? She's just listing things all the time, but then like... Instead of saying, here is a list of things that I'm telling you, it's like, here is a list of things I am telling you. Like, uh, that was I love such that. a bad Alanis. Clearly, I am not going to win. No, but I like the idea. You have a concept. This is good. This is a good starting point, and we'll just refine this. Whereas I will be in the corner practicing my Patricia Neal in The Subject Was Roses. Wait, what are the other ones that year? Vanessa Redgrave in Isadora, and shit. Joanne Woodward in Racial Racial. There's a lot of, like, really, like, friendly consonant sounds for Ingrid, (laughs) I feel like, in that whole lineup. There's a lot of, like, soft H's. It's a lot happening for her. Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. All right, anyway. We are well, well afield. of it all. This is what Maya Angelou being in a movie does to us is it, it sends us off on tangents. I will are, say this is yes. like I think this tangent is okay because I think I immediately text you 15 minutes into watching this movie. <laughs> we are talking about a movie that I swear to god is gay brunch. Yeah, this is a gay, gay brunch, brunch of a movie. It is true. I think just from the tone of our of our brief text about it, I think you liked it a little better than I did, but I'm interested to see at what angles we come at this thing. Because well, I will say I liked it a lot, but I have a lot of problems with it. Of course. I don't know how you couldn't. We are talking, of course, about the 1995 film How to Make an American Quilt, directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, who, best known to me otherwise as the director of The Dressmaker, a movie that I wanted to see before I we talked about this movie just for context, but I didn't have time to fit it in. But you have seen The Dressmaker. Uh, I have seen The Dressmaker. The Dressmaker would make an excellent episode for us to do at some point in the that's future. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a um, very good point. Jocelyn Morehouse, also noted director of another eventual episode, A Thousand Acres. Yes. Oh, my God. We are really painting a corner around A Thousand Acres, aren't we? <laughs> between <laughs> between Michelle Pfeiffer in another movie and between another Jocelyn Morehouse movie, we are just like... We are creating all of the negative space around what will eventually be our Thousand Acres episode. We are pivoting to becoming a Jocelyn Morehouse podcast. Yes. Um, Written by Jane Anderson. Jane Anderson, who is not maybe a household name among screenwriters, but she's made, she wrote this movie. She wrote The Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio. Hell yeah. And she wrote um, It Could Happen to You. The, the, oh, uh, yes. the winning lotto ticket movie. So, like, that's a really interesting triptych of movies. And then she wrote a bunch of, like, television. She did, like, the adaptation for um, 
Olive Kittredge and a bunch of like HBO movies. So she's worked a lot, but like her feature films, like that's a really interesting trio as far as I'm concerned. I love it. Prize winner of Defiance Ohio being another movie we could probably talk about on this podcast. So the cast in this movie is the cast in this movie is the is the big drawing point, right? It's Winona Ryder, Ellen Burstyn, Anne Bancroft, Dermot Mulroney, Jonathan Sheck, uh, Lois Smith, Gene Simmons, Maya Angelou, Alfre Woodard. It's quite it's a murderer's row lineup of uh, just talent everywhere. I tallied it up. We'll get into this now. I tallied it up. There are three Oscar winners and seven Oscar nominees in the cast. Would you care to venture to guess all of them? Um, Oscar winners. Anne Bancroft, Ellen Burstyn. Correct. One more. Um, not among the main cast, but among Not the... among the main cast. It is... Oh, Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Yep. Um, Nominees being Kate Nelligan. Yep. Alfrey Woodard. Yep. Um, Lois Smith hasn't been nominated. That's insane. Uh, Gene it Simmons. Is. Yep. Um, Rip Torn. Has Rip Torn been a nominee? Yes. Rip Torn and Alfrey Woodard both have their only Oscar nominations for the same movie. Oh, which is I don't know. What Cross movie Creek. Is. That. Mary Steenburgen movie about the woman who wrote The Yearling. Cool. No one remembers it. It's from 1983, but that is, yeah, that's the only Oscar nomination for Alfre Woodard, which, first of all, how dare you, and and for uh, for Rip Torn. Um, yes, and, of course, the other nominee being our star, one owner writer. Uh, yeah, so wait, that's seven, right? We got them all? Uh, we'll just say yes. We'll just say yes. Yeah, sorry, I'm, like, flipping my little, like, notebook page. No, you're missing two. Okay, who am I missing? You are missing one man and one woman. Oh, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins, who's in a in flashback with Kate seconds. Nelligan. And then one woman who's literally in it for one scene, and I think if you blinked, you might have missed her. I think I probably blinked and missed her. Her Oscar nomination was for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, no! Melinda Dillon is in this movie. That's right. That's how many actresses are in this fucking movie. Because yes. Melinda Dillon has a scene. Is she, like... Whose mother does she play? She plays um, Sophia's mother, the Lois Smith character who in flashbacks is played by Samantha Mathis, who is the only member of the flashback younger person cast to have been included in the film's ultimate uh, SAG Award ensemble nomination, which we will fully get into, trust me. Right. So before we get too much into the movie, Chris, are you prepared to stitch a patchwork of this film's plot into a 60-second time frame? Uh, we shall try. There is a lot of plot and a lot of divergences happening in this movie. Very true. Yes. All right. I have my phone ready to time you. So 60 second plot description starts now. Okay. So Winona Ryder plays a character named Finn Dodd. Why is she named Finn Dodd? Only because this movie is based off of a novel. Yep. Um, she is getting like her master's thesis, some type of like fancy thing where she has to write a bunch, but she's also engaged to Dermot Mulroney, who's named Sam and like, they like she's like struggling with whole like the idea of fidelity because like her mom had like instilled in her that like fidelity was bad or like 
people can't stay together forever just with one person because she got a divorce or something and had a bad marriage. That whole plot line is confusing. Oh, shit. Um, She goes to visit, like, her grandmother slash her grandmother's sister. Um, Her grandmother is named Hyacinth. Why? Because she's based out of a book. And Hyacinth is placed by Ellen Burstyn. Her sister is Gladdy Joe. Why is she named Gladdy Joe? Because she's a character from a book. Um, That character is played by Anne Bancroft. Hyacinth had had an affair. Oh, shit. Hyacinth had had an affair with Gladdy Joe's wife. Um, or husband played by Rip Torn um, uh, there's a lot of infidelity in this movie and it's a bunch of women's stories that um, well Time. okay Woo. wow um, we here's what mention- I'm going to tell you you got a little tied up on the names which is understandable because and yet- these are not human beings names it's not well first of all high is short for hyacinth which is true but did you also notice that gladi is short for gladiola Yes. So, like, um, Holland Taylor, who played their mother in the scenes where they were children, Claire Danes plays young Anne Bancroft, and Lisey Gorenson from Roseanne plays young uh, Ellen Burstyn, and Holland Taylor plays their mother, and at one point she says, Hyacinth and Gladiola, and I about fell out of my chair. Because, yes, you're right, these are very, very, very much names that you give characters in novels, and especially novels of this type, which is... Um, Yes. Well, okay, the only way I think I could have conceivably gotten every character in this movie and, like, the ones that are essential to the plot and what is happening in this movie, it would have just been to list the character names and the people that played them. It's so many stories. You're getting these flashbacks to all of these women's stories that Hyacinth and Gladdy Joe have like a quilting club and it's like not just a like quilting bee basically it's, it's described yeah. as a quilting bee which i think is very funny because it's and like, like it you makes think it sound like, like a competition yes absolutely like they're fighting with each other but they're not they're just like sitting well, very quietly making a quilt aren't and, they like, though aren't they these, fighting with each other on a yes deep level? they are um but or there's like two small fights happening but like these you would think these like here's the story of a few women that are friends with your grandma. Like that's normally like four stories, right? No, there's like eight different stories going back and forth. So it's like we mentioned Hyacinth and Gladdy Joe, who there was like uh, Hyacinth's husband was dying and like in a fit of like despair or whatever, sleeps with Gladdy Joe's husband. And like, there's resentment for that. Um, and then that storyline gets fully repeated with two of the other characters. Exactly. I want to because... put a pin in this for like half a second, though, because I, I want to get to the ensemble okay. for sure. But I feel like we should maybe like square Winona away first. OK, yes. Let's take care of Finn. Because I want to talk about we, we sort of we start we try and talk about a little bit at the beginning why the movie that we're talking about on this podcast had Oscar buzz to begin with. And I feel like that story doesn't necessarily end with Winona Ryder, but it certainly begins with her because this is the 1995 Winona's coming off of two consecutive Oscar nominations. One for um, the age of innocence in 1993, which she was nominated for a supporting actress. And then in 94, she's nominated for little women in lead actress. And in 93, I definitely remember she had won the globe, right? Mm. She I won, think so, yes. Because Anna Paquin was sort of not a sh- well, she was a very surprising winner because I remember the front runners that year being Winona and Rosie Perez. And there was like neither one was a slam dunk because then they were also 
remember how there used to be this sort of like quote unquote rule where like if an actor or actress is nominated in both lead and supporting in the same year that like they'll win for supporting and i don't remember like yeah who that was ever true for but i remember like then sigourney weaver goes and gets nominated for both and loses both and that's sort of like in 1988 for uh when she was nominated for working girl and gorillas in the mist and that's sort of like blew that all to hell but i remember people being like with holly hunter and the firm and she was very obviously going to win for the piano and i remember some people being like ah but remember the rule that if you're nominated twice you'll usually win supporting and i'm like first of all show me the receipts second of all she's not going to win for the firm much as i love her in the firm she's very like fun in that movie but it's like she's not going to win for the firm instead of the piano that's insane if i can say the one thing that would have appeased me in that scenario is it would have made the path fully clear for Angela Bassett to yeah. win for What's Love Gotta Do With It. One of my, like, probably top five favorite performances of all time. It's really great, and it would have been really great. But, like, it's it's tough to be, like, fuck Holly Hunter and the piano. But... Mm, yes, that is, that's fair, but, like, I still vote for Angela Bassett, whatever. I understand. Uh, I understand um, that. But so, wait, where did I... Oh, Winona. So, Winona not winning for The Age of Innocence, then she comes back the next year, um with the Little Women nomination. And one of these years, we're going to go deep on the 1994 Best Actress race, which which remains one of the craziest, strangest Oscar races I can remember, just in terms of, like, Jessica Lange won everything. And yet, for I don't know... For a movie that sat on a shelf for two years. And nobody saw it. And even the people who saw it weren't that blown away by it. Like, I don't know if that movie has fans. I think that this is going to be a repeat this year if Glenn Close wins. You know, that's it's a better comparison for Glenn Close and the wife than still Alice and Julianne Moore. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Because I because... think more, more people saw still Alice, and I think still Alice had more going for it. I don't think Blue Sky is a terrible movie. I think I think the wife is a worse movie than Blue Sky was. But like, I watched that performance that Jessica Lange wins. As somebody who had already won an Oscar, that's the big difference. The fact that Jessica Lange was already an Oscar winner and they still sort of like drummed up this momentum for her. And like I mean, of, of the nominees that year, it's Jessica Lange, it's Jodie Foster and Nell, which she had won twice. They weren't going to give her three that soon. It's the only reason why Jodie Foster have doesn't won if she didn't already have two. Recently if she, have two. If she'd only, if if either she'd only had one Oscar under her belt at that point, or Nell came like a decade or more after Silence of the Lambs, she probably wins for that because I think people really, really thought she was very impressive in that movie. Even though that movie reads very campy today, it yes. read very campy back then too, with the whole like. I have no idea what Tay and the Ween you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, like, Miranda Richardson was never going to win for Tom and Viv, but, like, great for her for being nominated. Susan Sarandon getting nominated for The Client was weird enough. Like, they're, like she was going to have to wait one more year. And then the other nominee that year is Winona Ryder, who is – Little Women wasn't really nominated elsewhere in a major category. I think it – I'm sure it got costume and something else. I'm uh, looking it score? up now. My guess is would be costume and score and perhaps art direction. Tell me. Costume and score, Thomas Newman. Yeah. So Colleen Atwood. And it's funny that Sarandon probably could have been a contender and supporting actress there too, because she's very good. Winona Ryder for Little Women would have been a great win. 
she would have been my vote in that category for sure. Absolutely for sure. And that would have been a really great win. And I think it's only because that movie wasn't considered a top tier Oscar movie that year in the way that like Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction and Shawshank were. Yeah. Um, but honestly, again, and we'll probably mention it again for the movie we're talking about this week. It's the way that people write off women's pictures. But I think she's much, 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 much better in Little Women than she is in How to Make an American Quilt. I don't think, I think the writing lets her down a little bit in How to Make an American Quilt, but I don't think that character makes very much of an impression at all. No. Which is too bad, um, because I think the momentum that she had coming off of Age of Innocence and Little Women, if she was, well, There's also Reality Bites right there, too, that, like, isn't the nominee but you have to imagine well that was 94 too but yes that's all part of this like great like winona momentum like she was cresting in her career right now and i think part of the problem was she could have been you know as great as she'd ever been and 1995 best actress is a real 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 tough nut to crack we've talked about that before about what a you know Mm all-timer of a year that was that is to remind people Sarandon wins for Dead Man Walking, Streep for uh, Bridges in Madison County. Wait, help me out. Sharon Stone for Casino. Elizabeth Shue for Leaving Las Vegas. And Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility. And Emma Thompson for Sense and and Sensibility, who, like, it's a really, really, really good year. So, on some level, by the time we had already gotten to 1995, we had missed our moment with Winona Ryder, which is really, really, really too bad. And wow, what a moment. Um, but yeah, Finn is not my favorite character in this movie. I don't think she's supposed to be necessarily. But like, there is a center to this movie that doesn't really hold because she's not that compelling. She's just sort of like she's wishy-washy as a like character trait. I think Winona is a little miscast as well because it doesn't really play off of the type of things that she's good at. Um, even in some of the reviews of the movie, whose review was this? I'm looking that up as well. Um, oh, it was the Washington Post mentioned that for once she seems to be acting. So Ooh, it's like she doesn't really shade. get to be. I know that's pretty shady. But like Winona is kind of like this natural presence, whereas like. She's playing this kind of mannered character who has this, like, kind of inauthentic journey about, like, fidelity. I mean, I'm. it feels like it would have even been dated for the 90s, you know, of just this idea that, yeah. like, she's struggling with the idea of getting married because she doesn't know if, like, people can be together forever, just two people. Like, yeah. it's not all that interesting, and she's thirsting over Jonathan Sheck. Who's like, okay, here's the other thing. I mean, I feel like for like the twelfth consecutive movie, we're saying about Dermot Mulroney, where it's like he's just not that likable of a character because he's not like even. Yeah. I think you're supposed to feel some sympathy for his character because his fiance is thinking about stepping out on him, and yet every time we see him, I'm like, fuck that guy, and I don't. Yeah, know whether, like this guy sucks, and I don't think it's me carrying things over from other movies. I don't like him in My Best Friend's Wedding, and I don't like him in The Family Stone, but I don't think it's that. I think it's that, like, he he doesn't do the work to create a likable character. Yeah, there's not much that's going on the way the character is written that would make us dislike the character. I mean, like, 
probably Sam and Finn should not be together because they're both just like kind of childish and like like I deeply don't want know what her they want. to run away with Jonathan Sheck even though Jonathan Sheck's character oftentimes presents as if he has some sort of mental deficiency where like he'll like show up carrying like a thing of strawberries and he'll just be like grinning and he'll just be like I got yeah, you like, strawberries yeah like I found these <laughs> it's like, just like what is like if he wasn't Jonathan Sheck and wasn't like a walking pair of eight abs like this would be a this would be a creepy person. This would be a serial killer. I have this um, slotted in our outline for later, but we're just going to talk about it now. The Jonathan Sheck of it all. Like this era of life that like some of the children out there you don't know. You don't know what it was like to grow up in the era of hot as fuck Jonathan Sheck. It was like a very slender era. Which was like 95 to whenever the Doom generation happened. But like within that sliver of American life, so many homosexual dreams were made. Like, oh my. He's so freaking hot in this movie. There's a lot. I mean, like, and this movie really only requires him to be hot. Like, to the point, like, yes, she has an affair with him, but like, we don't. it doesn't feel like I I don't know. It He's a swimmer, you guys. His yeah, whole character swims. is they like They meet at a pool. They meet at a pool. Who among you? None of you. No court has in the world has not met Jonathan Sheck at a pool. No court in the world could convict any of us. But Whew. also like he is like at least smiling and charming and like Dermot Mulroney is like constantly grimacing and being like do whatever you want to do. Maybe I'll come pick you up at the end of the summer from your grandma's house. I don't know. Like, no Greek islander has ever tanned as well as Jonathan Sheck tans in life. I will just say. Yeah. Go on. Continue. Okay, so, like, that's just, like, kind of the, I guess you would say primary, though it doesn't necessarily feel that way, story of infidelity in this movie. And then There's a almost... backstory with her mom where, like, you get yeah. you, you keep getting the sense that she gets a lot of this sort of neuroticism and insecurity about fidelity and, and, and monogamy from her mother because she's sort of, you know, we get these hints that the mom divorced her father when the marriage was really young, when Winota's character was really young and it messed her up. And she's sort of a a flighty kind of person and maybe a little bit of a self-destructive person. And we don't meet her mom until very, very late in the movie. She ends up being played by Kate Capshaw. And I think to the movie's credit, the movie doesn't make this woman quite the mess that Finn makes her out to be when she's talking to the other characters. That like she makes some sense and she actually gives Finn some of the best advice she gets in the movie, which is just sort of like, you're just scared about taking this next step in life and just like acknowledge that and maybe don't make more of this than what it is, which I think is some pretty good advice. There is something to the movie about perspective and perception that is interesting that like we kind of need someone else to reflect our own story at us to like really understand yeah. what's going on in our situation that I find really interesting. And in that way, I thought Kate Capshaw was one of my favorite performances in the movie. Yeah, she's really good. So I want to get into the, the quilting bee ladies. I will say one of the notes that I made early on in the movie where I was, I was very frustrated with this movie and like some of that went away, but like not all of it. And 
I started to write down about how oddly fragmented the story structure was that we would just, you know, drop characters for like ever and just sort of linger on these seemingly insignificant or like less significant characters for huge chunks of the story until I realized that like, oh, right, it's a fucking quilt. Like that's, you know, and, and I, and I still might not think that it works necessarily to a movie's benefit to have these sort of like story blocks in, you know, all of a sudden we're going to spend all this time with the Lois Smith character. And what does the Lois Smith character ultimately mean to Winona Ryder? Not a lot, because she doesn't really Not like a... that woman. But, like, and then we're going to move on to the Gene Simmons character for a while. And then we're going to... Um, Which is on... just, like, essentially the same story we've already been told. Well, it's it's the same goddamn story as High and Gladdy. Because, all right, so we'll get to that in a second. But so, like, ultimately... I don't know if that necessarily works well for the movie, but like props to the movie for doing the story matches form kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Cause I like when that, I do like when, when I wish it did it go hand better hand. and did it a little bit more like thoughtfully. Because yeah. I think this is a movie that for every three things that it does that I really want it to do, it does those, but then it does something that I find really frustrating or has yeah. like some backwards ideas that, maybe at the time wouldn't have been as frustrating, but now feels like representative of like some archaic ideas about like love and yeah. gender roles. And yeah. So Chris, I would like you to rank all of the, the seven, I think it's seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yes. Seven members of the quilting bee. And just for our listeners benefit, I will run down who they are. So, as we mentioned, Hi and Gladdy, who are sisters, played by Ellen Burstyn and Anne Bancroft. Ellen Burstyn, uh, Hi, is Finn's grandmother, and then Gladdy is obviously her great aunt. And that story is Hi's husband was dying. Uh, this is all in flashback. All these backstories are all in flashback. Hi's husband was dying, and she ends up sleeping with Gladdy's husband, who's played by Rip Torn, as a sort of like, you know, grasping out for for comfort in the midst of her grief and Gladdy finds out and breaks all of the China in the house and then like cements it to the wall of like the laundry room in the house. And it becomes this like the representation of her anger, very obvious visual metaphor that lasts throughout the whole movie. So it's those two. It's Sophia played by Lois Smith, who is like Finn kind of hates her because she's always sort of mean and critical to Finn. She and her flashbacks played by Samantha Mathis. As I mentioned, she used to be a diver and then she met, Um, her husband played in the flashbacks by Lauren Dean and starts a family with him and sort of motherhood and wifehood sort of grind her down and she stops diving and she stops like knowing the freedom of, of whatever the water and And like stop being nice. Right. And the husband leaves her and she becomes mean and then she'll like swim in the community pool and yells at children. That's sort of her thing. He leaves her after giving her a pond. She doesn't want. That's right. He like digs a pond for her in the backyard and he's like, I did it for you. And she's like, meh. And he's like, bye. So <laughs> M, who's played by Gene Simmons, who is British and is hiding a bit British and uh, hiding her accent poorly, let's say. Yeah. Right? Gene Simmons yeah. is British, I imagine. Uh, She's in fucking Hamlet. Um anyway. Her husband this She's is married like to the this hottest sort of, story. He's you know, I wrote in my notes, he's like he's a real artistic guy, sensitive, a painter. Um <laughs> He found Ruth, Gladys. Rosemary and Irving. 
he ends up sleeping with everybody in town. It's very, very, very much Al Lipschitz. It's like very much Selbach Tango. And they're very much telling you like the whole time, like any time that they're talking about his infidelities, it always ends with, but he's an artist. Like, right. Well, that's his like, excuse. What? And he has these like, it's the worst parts of the movie when he's just like, I just, I have to, my muses and whatever. And like, I will say their flashback is very sexual. And it's like, he's like painting her naked. Like they fight for some reason. She's naked in a bathtub. Yeah. And like, it's it, very, very sexy. Their, their flashback is very Red Shoe Diaries and fabulous. That uh, actress who plays M in flashbacks is Joanna Going, who most people I think don't really know. I only know her because she she was on Another World when I was growing up, like when I was very, very, very little. And then she left that show and sort of did other things. But she's a soap actress. That storyline ends up crisscrossing with Constance, who's played by Kate Nelligan, who's always in these sort of like pants ensembles that I really, really love. I love Kate Nelligan in this movie. I really wish they would give her like twice as many things to do. Like her Kate backstory Nelligan. is she was married to Richard Jenkins. We only see their marriage in like this like Super 8 home movie video of them sort of like standing in like a grove of some sort and being very, very cute together and sweet together. And we understand that he had died. And in her grief, she goes and reaches out to M's philanderer artist of a husband. And well, he kind up... of actually pursues her, it seems more like. And I was actually confused. Maybe I like blinked and missed something here. As I to whether confused. they ever actually did anything? Yes, because it seemed to me like it could have not happened. Except that in the present day, when, like, they're throwing, like, passive-aggressive shade at her, like, she never says, she never, like, sticks up for herself and says yeah. that she didn't. But that could just be that she's sort of a, she's a hard woman who, like, there's she's very sort of buttoned up, but I love her. Um, and then, so there's that. So, again, that storyline is so fucking similar to High and Gladdy that I don't understand the utility of it. Because if the whole thing, the whole idea is that, all of these stories are like touching on different aspects of Finn's, you know, mindset and life and whatever. I don't understand why we would repeat anyway. So then there's Anna played by Maya Angelou, who is like the head of the quilting bee. And she's the one who knows about design and, and color matching and perspective. And she's the quilting expert. So she's in she's charge. She's kind of the initiator of all of the quilting too, because it was a family tradition for her. Right. She was the maid for high and Gladys mother played in flashback by Holland Taylor. And then she got pregnant and was sort of sent away by her family to have the baby in secret as was done at the time. And ultimately her great love story is her love for her daughter who is as an adult in the present day scenes played by Alfre Woodard, that character's name is Mariana, 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 something. Yeah. Anyway, um, and her flashback is sort of very brief. She's sort of this like she's a little bit younger. She's a little bit more like worldly. She's been to Paris. She's been all over, you know, whatever. And Finn kind of looks up to her as this. She you know, idolized her as a child. She said she wanted to be her when she grew up. Right. Which can you blame her? She's Alfre Woodard looking like brown cow stunning like as much as like stunning as she's ever looked i feel like in a movie yes alfrey woodard looks amazing in this movie and she's and even you know she has this sort of freewheeling never had you know had a man for too long and goes from like place to place and that's why finn idolizes her but then her story when she ends up telling it to winona is that there's one man who she met one night in Paris who she feels like is her great soulmate of her life. And she always sort of thinks about it and it's, you know, tinged with regret and whatever. So there's your seven. Hi, Gladdy, Sophia, M, Constance, Anna, and Mariana. 
how do you rank them? Okay, so first off, obviously Mariana. First of, yeah. One of the reasons Mariana is amazing is because she gets the least amount of time for her story, and it's the most interesting. 100% um, true. 100% true. And, like, as you mentioned about Alfre Woodard, who is, like, always incredible, how is she not going to be first place? Alfre Woodard speaks in a French dialect and smokes the whole movie. That it's is a so whole great. fucking mood. It's, it's so amazing. Great. It's, it's amazing. So first of all, she wasn't raised in France. Why does she have a French dialect? <laughs> Doesn't matter. She's the best. Um, and then I would say second is um, Gladie Jo. Um, we love a bitter queen. Um, <laughs> Anne Bancroft is also, like I think, one of the better performances in this movie. Um, She's great. Yes. Next, I would say... Is probably Anna, played by Maya Angelou, if these hoes try to come for me. I surely will cut thee. <laughs> um, and this is where it gets tricky. Because, like, the rest of these characters, I feel like, are the ones that have the most time spent on them. And it's like, this movie is better through brevity, kind of, and more impactful. Yeah. Um, so next, I would probably say Hi, played by Ellen Burstyn. Um... And then I would go to M, mostly through just the flashbacks portion of it. Sure, and sure, then sure. Sophia and last honestly would be Constance. I know you said you liked Constance, but like, here's my thing. Here's my thing. What I like about her is all Kate and Elegant. It is nothing to do with the character. I think she's a little bit of a nothing character. And I think that the movie sells her short the most of all of these <clears throat> women because they really just kind of paint her as like a sad woman. Like they don't, you know. I don't disagree. They don't with that. dive into the grief really. It feels like th- her flashback portion, where she is potentially having this affair with M's husband, is more about him than it is about her. Um, I don't disagree with that. I think the movie does sell her short. I feel like with the performance by Kate Nelligan, and there, I feel like there's so much peeking out from the little moments that we have with her that I'm I'm sold in that way and I'm sort of you know I like I do like a character who makes me sort of like travel with her out of the room and she leaves a little bit one of the problems I have with the movie is that they'll have these characters tell their story and then when they get to the end we're just in a different scene and it's like we don't get to see Finn react to it yeah very or much. like take anything from it. Like, or I don't sometimes understand. it feels like they even contradict their own story. Well, did like, you feel that way? Yes. I don't, but like specifically, what are you talking about? Because I feel like you're, you've got something in mind. Just some of the like infidelity stuff where it's like, you know, but it's okay. You can just like, you know, I don't know. Well, and I, my thing is because at one point in the movie before she ends up um, sort of, falling into temptation with Jonathan Sheck, she calls up, she and Sam have a fight and she calls him up and another woman answers the phone. And so her big concern is that like he's cheating on her now. And so during this portion is when she hears the story about High and Gladdy and she hears the story about M and her artist husband and Constance. And yet we never once see her relationship with her grandmother change, even after she finds out that her grandmother, you know, was unfaithful. And she doesn't seem to get, like, side-eye towards Constance either after hearing that. So it's like, I, I, if we're, again, if the whole point is that we're supposed to connect all of these stories to Finn as a character, we don't really get the opportunity to see how Finn reacts to these stories, with the exception of Mariana, where she, 
you know, she clearly at that point was looking for an excuse to go run away with Jonathan check because again, who wouldn't, um, the Mariana story is so good and it's so mm -hmm. short. So anyway, my ranking, I think I'm with you on Mariana. Like she's definitely my number one for all the reasons that you said you were very, very succinct about that. My number two is Constance for all these reasons. I just, I genuinely, genuinely, you know, want to follow her around. I also don't love M as an as a old lady character. She's m maybe my least favorite. So she's the least clear. But like, I think maybe I was just drawn to her backstory and at least the way that it was like shot and you know. Oh, I think feels that's different from true. the rest of the movie. But like that one scene of Constance and Richard Jenkins really like made me swoon. I just really loved them together. Uh, my number three is. I think my number three is Sophia. I think Lois Smith does a really good job in this movie, and that's another performance I wish we got to see a little bit more of. I like me to put Lois Smith so low on any list. I like how prickly she is towards Finn, and in the end of the movie, when she sort of softens towards Finn, you get to see that like she's just kind of strange. She's just kind of doesn't really know how to be warm. So she's sort of relearning human emotion a little bit i don't know yeah. I, I like that about her then i would say probably a tie between that's a cop out no i'm gonna say Gladdy next i think ann bancroft i think you're right is giving a very good performance and um i mentioned to you when i texted that it was a little bit odd that her name in this is Gladdy, and Gladdy is a name i remember very specifically from home for the holidays who is the geraldine chaplin character who is uh -huh. Anne Bancroft's sister in that movie, who in that movie, Gladdy had the hots for Bancroft's husband all those years, if you remember. Yeah. So there was a whole lot of like overlap. And anyway, anyway, that's neither here nor there. After Gladdy comes Anna. I think Anna's a really, you know, is a good character. She's doing sort of the Maya Angelou sort of like regal. I, I kept, you can't. Her not story think of... has more depth than I think a lot of these women do and a lot more dimension. But like, yes, you're right that the movie I think is relying on the Maya Angelou of it all. I think her story does have depth. I think Maya Angelou's performance as the old lady, Anna is a lot, is very sort of like stayed and very like, you know, you know, you know, the moonlight gives you excuses to behave badly. Like that she kind does of say s like some stupid shit about the moonlight. I like. I. It's impossible not to think of like Maya Rudolph doing, you know, her Maya Angelou <laughs> character, and have like Winona Ryder just being like, "It's an honor." Hello, Chad. I am the rock. I am the river. I am the one who put a pie under the butt. Of Morgan Freeman. Monet Exchange being like, the full moon gives these hoes a reason <laughs> to act stupid. <coughs> the reason to act a fool. I also want to say justice for David Allen Greer's Maya Angelou performance, which nobody ever wow. talks about from, from like 1990s Saturday Night Live when he's doing the uh, Maya Angelou for Fruit Loops. And she's just like... <laughs> Phoenix of the Dawn, Toucan Sam. Toucan Sam, you leap on the back of the wind. Lodestone to assorted fruit flavors. Phoenix of the Dawn's one smile. We gave you Toucan Sam life. You, Toucan Sam, give us loops of fruit. It's so fucking funny. Nobody know. People, the, the children don't know. It's so... Nothing but respect to my Angelou, but like... 
Maya Angelou like churning in a frothy mother sea of milk. It's such a good (laughs) fucking sketch. I love it so much. Anyway. So this whole group of ladies were so prestigious and so sort of accomplished that they were nominated for the very first SAG Award for Best Ensemble. The SAG Awards began in this year, in 1995. Um, Wait, no, they didn't, because it's saying here, sorry, I'm on Wikipedia, that this is the second SAG Awards, and yet we don't have information on the first SAG Awards. There was a SAG Awards in 1994, okay, but they did not have an ensemble category until 95. That's what it is. So the second year of the SAGs, they introduced the Best Ensemble category. How to Make an American Quilt is one of the nominees. As I mentioned, it's all of the old ladies, plus Winona Ryder, plus Samantha Mathis, like, sorry, Claire Danes, sorry, Jared Leto, and no, (laughs) no Dermot Mulroney. No Jonathan Sheck. It's just... Oh, yeah, no men. <laughs> that I'm fine with. But, like, it's interesting, as always, it's interesting, and we'll get into that, the politics of who get, who get you know, let in and who get left out. So that film is nominated alongside previous This Had Oscar Buzz movie, Get Shorty, and then three movies that were big mainstays in the Oscar race that year, Apollo 13, which, was, which would win, Nixon, with its giant sprawling cast of, you know, all sorts of, you know, typical Oliver Stone sprawling. There's a lot of people. David Hyde Pierce is nominated. Ed Harris, Larry Hagman, Fivish Finkel. Who doesn't love a Fivish Finkel nomination? Um, And then Sense and Sensibility, who, curiously enough, only nominates... Hugh Grant, Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet. Like, there's because lots more people. famously, the rule is you have to have a solo screen credit, which is kind of, like, shocking that Nixon has that many people with solo screen credits. That's probably why that movie's so fucking long. Um, <laughs> but Sense and Sensibility, you're right. Those four people, like, yes, those are great performances, but, like, they're not the whole movie. There's a million people in that movie that are so good. You could even say, to a lesser degree, the same for Apollo 13, because it only has six cast right. members nominated. All of the astronauts and Kathleen Quinlan. And, that's and Ed Harris. Well, right. Who was an astronaut who had to stay home? Right. Yeah. So, wait, no, he wasn't. Who was the astronaut he was who had the, to stay home? He was, he in was like the a control room guy. Right. Yeah. Who's the astronaut who has to stay home in that movie? Is it Sinise? That's Sinise. Right. Um, because anyway. Bill Paxton is the one that gets sick in space. Right. So, The SAG Ensemble Award, I think How to Make an American Quilt is nicely emblematic of one of the things I really love about the SAG Ensemble Award historically, which is, especially in its earlier years, they would throw some real curveballs in there. And even though, like, this is the only place where How to Make an American Quilt shows up in any real Oscar precursor anywhere, like not even the National Board of Review threw this a bone. Like, and this would seem like the kind of movie that the National Board of Review would throw on a list of, like, special achievement in ensembles or whatever, you know? Yeah. And Especially in the heyday of when they would, like, literally miss, list, like, 30 movies somehow. Right, and, like, right. Yeah. Totally. Um, so I like that, like, this year Get Shorty... Well, Get Shorty was a little bit more in the race in that, like, it had Golden Globe nominations and whatnot. Didn't, ha- didn't end up with any Oscar nominations, as we mentioned in our episode, but... How to Make an American Quilt was a real outlier. The next year, 
even better, the Birdcage is nominated and wins, which is one of my favorite things that has ever happened in an award show. It's a great freaking ensemble win. Um, again, that's another one where it's like, there. That's this. That's a great example of like the people who are not having their solo credits are not listed. Like Callista Flockhart is funny in that movie, and she's yeah, not, she's not part okay. of or um. No, Futterman. That's interesting. Yeah, the politics well, of no, that. Well, no, she is on the list. Um, I would, like, counterpoint your argument that it's, like, movies that are not in the conversation whatsoever. I think more so what it is is that they're these, like, outlier movies. We see it this year with, um, I think, Crazy Rich Asians is probably right. an example of this, where it's, like, this movie is going to have a hard time getting especially a Best Picture nomination because, yes. like, SAG is probably less snobby than the Oscars are. Um, so you might see comedies do better with SAG or like mainstream movies, but like, I think it's movies that when they show up in SAG ensemble, we think they have a stronger chance than they probably do because they're more of, like I said, an outlier in the Oscar conversation. I agree. Like this probably would have been, but they're not full. They're rarely fully like completely out of left field outside of the type of awards conversation what the movies that are mentioned in awards conversations i think that's true but i think also i think there was a time there was a stretch there where the sag ensemble award got very very locked in with the oscar best picture category yes where like when crash won in 2005 that was like the big indicator that it was going to win and that year like crash brokeback mountain capote good night and good luck are all SAG Ensemble that are also, well, Good Night and Good, yes, right? Those are all Best Picture nominees, right? And then the fifth. Yes, the only was Hustle and Flow. Which replaced Munich, which. Yeah. But like, and again, Hustle and Flow was, you know, that was the nomination for Terrence Howard that year. So that wasn't. Well, and if I remember correctly, too, because Munich makes sense as a SAG Ensemble nominee, too. But I think it wasn't seen until too late. Right. But I think for a while there, we sort of got locked into the idea of SAG as the great oscar bellwether because the uh, the acting branch of the academy is the biggest branch and actors vote for movies where they love the acting and yada 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 and while all of that is true i like the fact that in recent years as you mentioned crazy rich asians this year last year with the big sick getting a nomination the year before much as i didn't like that movie captain fantastic getting an ensemble nomination the year before that straight out of compton and again, I don't like Trumbo very much, but Trumbo. And then that very strange Beast nomination no for Beasts of No Nation, where it's like Be- uh, Idris Elba, Abraham Attah, Kurt Agiawian, Ag- Ag- and no one else. In that, but like, sprawling quite ensemble. Quite literally, movie. like, that's a sprawling ensemble of, like, child actors, non actors, that, like, that's actually, I think, a good nomination, but because of their stupid rule, it, it becomes looks a weird strange because you only have three nominations nominees but i think i think it's better i like it better when this is sort of goes into a more holistic sort of view of award season that i have where it's like all of the things that people complain about the different idiosyncrasies of the different awards bodies i love i love that the national border review throws a bone to everyone and gives like you know invents lists to put movies on i love that the golden globes are star fuckers. I love that the SAG Awards will, you know, in a, you know, when they're doing what they do, that they really just love 
a big movie with a big old cast full of stars. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that the National Society of Film Critics waits forever and then gets like super esoteric. Remember that stretch where the Los Angeles film critics just kept like reaching further and further outside of the mainstream to pick a best actress winner? Yes. That um, I loved. The uh, actress or supporting actress that won for the death of Mr. Laz- or Dr. Lazarescu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, all of that. Always like, sticks out to me. As mud- as often as these disparate awards precursors can have their own personalities and sort of follow that little, you know, follow their bliss in that way, that just means that it's... I love that so much better than the fucking Critics' Choice Awards trying their best to approximate who's going to win the Oscars. I love that well, so much. Well, and if you look at the SAG Ensemble ones, the the nomination lineups that are the most dubious are the ones that follow best picture absolutely. the most closely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. With the exception of 2007, which its winner, No Country for Old Men, is the only best picture nominee. And I think that that lineup kind of really sucks. Oh, I kind no of Country love that lineup men. because I love the Hairspray Ensemble so much. Oh, and... well, that's the that's what makes me happy is Hairspray is nominated. It's 310 to Yuma, American Gangster, and Into the Wild. That is dry. That is bone dry. It is. I will say I really liked 310 to Yuma so, so much. And that's coming from me who hates Westerns. And I liked the ensemble in Into the Wild better than I liked that movie. Like, I like a lot of those actors. Marsha Gay Harden, yeah. Catherine Keener, Kristen Stewart, Jenna Malone. Um, I get what you're saying. I do. I get what you're saying about that, but there's a, there's there's corners of that that I like. But like, I love that the SAG ensemble will nominate Bobby, a objectively terrible movie that, that we'll eventually talk about. We fully will eventually talk about on this podcast. But that's because half of the SAG voting committee was in was that in movie. The, right. That's exactly. Because there's twenty thousand people nominated right. in this SAG. I, that has to be the one that has the most nominees for ensemble. And it's dubious as hell, and it's you give it so much side eye. But I fucking love that about. The SAGs. And I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying about just like yes. keeping character in award season as much as possible? I, I I fully get you on the character side of it and how it's like, yes, that's what we want. We don't want like a homogenized award season where it's just the same things listed over and over. Even and over. when the nominees think... are bad, even when the outcomes are bad, I'm like, keep it like keep people are pissed at the Globes this year after where this is coming. We're recording this only a week removed from green book and bohemian rhapsody triumphing at the golden globes and people are pissed and it's like i get that people are pissed but like this whole like why you know let's stop paying attention to the globe and just like you guys just wait a year and they'll they're also just really really bad calls like but at the same time like it would have been great if they had maybe picked crazy rich asians for best comedy just to like Right. get that like spread that we want like we want the spread but we want it to be good but because like, that was going to be my next point because even the SAG ensemble like there's upsides and downsides to all these things we're talking about how they like pick these like why like these huge casts just because it's a large ensemble because I will say wh- okay what is your least favorite SAG ensemble nomination because mine is one that they just picked it because it's a large cast and there's prestige associated. Which is I will what? say, I think Nine has no business being an ensemble nominee. Almost everyone in that movie is actively bad except for... Um, uh, Fergie? Say Fergie. Because it's Fergie. No, I will not say Fergie. Fergie's the best part Marianne of Nine. Cotillard and Pen- Penelope Cruz. 
Fergie is so much better than Marion Cotillard in and Penelope Cruz in Nine, and I will go to my grave. Lie, lie for Italy. <laughs> go out there and lie for Italy. Lie for Italia. Lie for Italia. Oh, all right, yes. So it's Fergie one. It's only Judy Dench saying "Lie for Italia." That's the only part of Judy Dench that I want. And then Kate Hudson. <laughs> That's my. Kate Hudson is having fun. Kate Hudson is not good. Nicole Kidman, who obviously I love, is fully miscast because they dropped that song like four whole octaves for her. How can a movie? How can? How dare a movie make Nicole Kidman that forgettable? It's Ugh. a crime. How dare a movie force Sophia Loren to do an original song called <laughs> Garda da Luna? It's just a trash song that like she barely even speaks through. I think Nine is the worst SAG ensemble nomination. Nine's a really okay, so you're you want me to pick out a SAG nomination that was off of the best picture list. Well, Nine wasn't a best picture nominee. That's what I mean. So because like I could pick a whole yes. bunch of like yes. SAG pick nominees. Something, pick something that you would consider like not best picture associated. I think SAG got thrown for a while when they went to the top 10 list because then they had so many mm-hmm. to sort of so many opportunities for crossover. And so they just did for a while. But I think when they started to crawl out of it was again around 2015. We mentioned with Beast of No Nation straight out of Compton. My least favorite is Trumbo. I think Trumbo is a terrible is a terrible movie. is a bad movie full of actually bad performances. I think I I'm not as film people seem to be very down on Brian Cranston. It's one of those Beyonce situations I think where he's bad. film people film people don't get what didn't get what music people saw in Beyonce for a while. They get it now. Film people don't get what TV people love about Brian Cranston. I genuinely do like him. I think he's awful in Trumbo. I think Helen Mirren is awful. I think now you have a movie. I know Louis C.K. already has a SAG award for American Hustle, but like now we just have to look at Louis C.K. Louis C.K. on these lists, and that doesn't help anybody. I think Trumbo is awful, and I think that... I think Trumbo is authentically one of the worst Oscar-nominated movies of my lifetime. Yeah, it's really bad. It's really really bad, and. Yeah, so that would be my pick. Let's let's um continue this conversation with some positivity. What's the one that makes you happy? What makes you smile of like the non best picture? I mentioned Hairspray ensemble. because Hairspray is a movie that I know it had best picture buzz for a while where they were like it's making so much money yada yada yada. I don't think it, that was ever really going to happen, but I think even for even if it had gotten like snuck into a best picture, if that like if two thousand seven had a best had a ten wide best picture list and it had snuck onto that list, that's still not a movie that's going to produce acting nominees. And like, I think there are performances in that movie that are best of the year quality. I think James Marsden is so 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 good in that movie. I think it's tough to say. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is like bringing her top Michelle Pfeiffer to that. I think that's what Queen Latifah is doing within that movie. I think that's what Brittany Snow and Elijah Kelly are doing in that movie. And then you get to somebody like Travolta, who it is an it is impossible to say that John Tra- what John Travolta is doing in that movie is great, but it is something. It is memorable. It is something you are going to remember forever. It is the kind of performance that you're never going to be able to get out of your head once you see it. And I think 
there has to be a way to memorialize that. And I think being part of a SAG Ensemble nomination is exactly the right level of being able to memorialize that. I think the same thing of, like, Efron's character in that movie. We're like, he's not giving an Oscar nomination-worthy performance, but I'm glad that it is enshrined somewhere. I like that answer. My answer is far more boring. My answer... uh, Can I have a tie? I mean, I love The Birdcage, too. We mentioned The Birdcage. The Birdcage fully should have an Oscar acting nomination associated to it somewhere. You absolutely can have a tie. I will grant you a tie. Okay. What do you want to tie? My tie, both of them are, like, boring, obvious answers. I would say my tie is Boogie Nights and... I was going to say Bridesmaids. We will take that out, and I will just say Boogie Nights because I think fully everybody in that movie is exceptional. I thought you were going to mention one of my favorites that I didn't get to mention because now I want to tie. Um, the Station Agent in 2003. That's good, but I'm a little hesitant towards these, like, we nominated Small five ensembles. people. Yeah. No, like, truly. But that movie we, is those Everybody people. is wor- good. Um, but no, I think, like, there's a lot of performances in Boogie Nights, especially. You want to talk about memorializing yeah. performances, like, in some type of way. I think there's a lot of performances in Boogie Nights that fully deserve recognition that they've never got. Yeah. Um, and that's a way to do it. And then Magnolia of, like, gets a nomination two years later. Yeah. I, I would mean, say can... Boogie Nights is a better cast than Magnolia, at least on like every yes. performance. I think Boogie Nights is a better perfect. movie than Magnolia. And I know a lot of people think differently, but um, yeah. Sag Ensemble. Sag Ensemble. We love it. So, Let's go into, wow, we are trucking along in this episode. Okay, so very briefly before we get into IMDb game, I want to talk about um, just that the movie failed is not a surprise considering the reviews were pretty middling, the box office was pretty middling. It was, in general, a mixed to blah kind of a reception for this movie, right? Yeah. So I guess what's to say about that? Not a ton. Not a ton, but, like, you could see how, like, the prestige level of it, it was also an October release, could have kept it in the type of conversation. Like, maybe that ensemble nomination wouldn't have happened if this wasn't fresher in people's minds, but I'm glad that it was because, like, I do, like, (laughs) I made the joke of, like, no men nominated in this, and, like, I do kind of feel like that year is rather male centric where it's like even sense and sensibility half of those nominees are the men in the movie um so like i'm just happy to see like a female centric film yeah in a major prize nominated where it doesn't feel like because like yes we're talking about the movie on itself is middling but i do think that there's a part of it that like it's easier to or like the culture makes it easier to dismiss a yeah. middling women's picture than it does a middling men's picture. Does this and kind of movie get made anymore in any form? Even like movies that are made with female cast and with female storytellers and, you know, that we're hopefully getting better about that and that there are indie movies that are made with, you know, female talent. But just like when it I don't does, think we get movies I, like this. We like, I hate this conversation a, because it's just a bummer, but like, also, anytime that they do get made, they come with all this pressure that it's like, it has to do well. It has to be received well. And, like, can we just, like, enjoy the movie for what it is? Like, I do enjoy this movie for what it is. And it's like, it just sucks that, like, 
in order to have the next one, like, everybody has to be, like, chewing their nails to, like, take care of it. But even among, like, movies that are, you know, female ensembles or whatever that we are rooting for, that we're chewing our nails for, I don't think it's ever this kind of movie anymore. I just don't think... I'm trying to remember the last time that there was a movie with this kind of vibe to it, this kind of, you know, sit around and tell our stories and... You know, Roger Ebert compared it to the Joy Luck Club, which is another one where you just sort of you look at the difference between the Joy Luck Club and Crazy Rich Asians, which is, you know, a comparison that was drawn a lot lately because of the historical benchmarks that they that they marked. And Crazy Rich Asians is so much more and I'm not saying this as a detriment at all. I love Crazy Rich Asians, but it's poppier, it's brighter, it's more, you know, plottier like things are going on and things have to get done and things have to get accomplished and whatever. it's not fully female focused too right um, um but i also just feel like i think there's a, there's a sense that just like you don't get a slow burn sort of like movie like this or even like a this movie reminded me of fried green tomatoes in a way Oh, I love Red Green Tomatoes. I know. And I, and I think that's another movie where we don't get anything I out of it. I love that movie. The other thing I had sort of jotted down in my notes about how, like, this kind of movie that depends on other more colorful characters telling their stories in a way that reflect upon Winona Ryder's story was done to me better in Girl Interrupted. Yeah. I mean, I think even when you get into, like, this movie, there's some, like, problematic issues with that of, like, how it, like, helps her become, like, better. I don't know. Um, But, like, that's just my problem with this movie is, like, it's not always done, like, sharply. It's not done, like, with a lot of impact. Um, Yeah. Two things from my notes I wanted to ask you about. One... What did you think of the whole the windstorm that sweeps through and blows her uh, her master's thesis all over? I mean, the it feels very much of a book. <laughs> very We've much talked of a book. About, well, it like, also felt like the John Irving type of things, like that could have been like pulled out of some John Irving book, where it's like some Deus Ex Machina happens that, yeah, or like a lighter Southern Gothic, and it made me realize that like this movie might have had been better off if it had been more of a of a Southern Gothic kind of a vibe. Like, yeah. uh, you know, or just some, a little more like, I don't want to say intensity to it, but like, yeah, it's so kind of laid back in that. Like, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily trusting us to get the ideas, but there's not a whole lot of, yeah. Well, for a second there, I thought the whole thing was going to be that there was going to be a tornado that was going to sweep through town or whatever, yeah. because it was like, it's really windy. And now I'm just imagining of like, well, mid nineties tornadoes were the thing, man. Like in a um, few years, like Anna's going to stitch a little patch on her quilt of like the day it got really windy <laughs> for like 15 minutes. And then no wind at all. It was just like, it was very, very interesting and strange. The other thing I wanted to mention is it to me was unavoidably odd that these women would participate in a group activity that was that prone to dredging up memories when this particular group had so much like buried 
bad blood between them, like buried infidelity yeah. that they were all trying to not talk about. And Which it's like, is so well, yes. interesting, and it doesn't feel like you feel that energy really in the scene unless no. it is being specifically spoken about. And like, you wish that there was kind of like that interesting tension between everybody that it's like they're still drawn together or drawn to this act. Well, this is why Despite I had that. ranked um, Ellen Burstyn's character my least of all of the. Um, it was her and M, and I think maybe it's you know she's one of the two least just because I feel like her flashback doesn't ever doesn't really reflect on her character in present day. I just don't I don't know if I got a very strong relationship from her towards her granddaughter to her sister. I will say I was more interested in her in the present day. Like I kind of like that porch pot smoking scene. Oh, that is a really Quite good a scene. You're right. Um, that is a good scene. Like, that's the one that feels, like, most clearly defined what their relationship was yeah. in an interesting way. Yeah. Um, and that's even before the flashback. So we mentioned that this didn't really get nominated for any other precursors besides the SAG Ensemble nomination. It did get a nomination in one of my favorite awards categories. And you talk about, like, the, you know, eccentricities of different awards bodies. The MTV Video Musical – or the MTV Movie Awards – and their best kiss category, which again is the only thing that those awards matter for, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> How to Make an American Quilt is nominated for Winona and Dermot Mulroney, interestingly enough, which to me is an odd nomination just in general. But it showed that like Winona Ryder was still very much like big with the kids. Yeah, at this point, and so, they kissed in a car. <laughs> right? Did you look this up? Do you know who beat them? I did not look this up. Who beat them? Okay, so I want to give you the other nominees first because it, there's a little bit of a build. So one of them oh. is Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, which is such a, like, pandering to the boys in the MTV yes, demographic. Yes, yes, yes. Jim Carrey and who? Sophie Okonedo. Yes. I've never seen Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. It is bad, okay. and it is really offensive. One of them is Keanu Reeves for A Walk in the Clouds. Oh, yes. A Walk in the Clouds. We love. Aitana sanchez Guijon for um, A Walk in the very Clouds. Very soft focus. Very. Yeah. Another yes. movie I haven't seen. Sensual. One movie I have seen that I'm surprised didn't win except for when you see who the winner is. Um, Desperado. Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas in Desperado. Desperado, a huge breakthrough movie for Salma Hayek's career. Desperado is I haven't seen it since as I since I was a kid, but I remember like the trailer on various VHSs and being like that movie's badass. This was during my like peak hot for Antonio Banderas phase. Uh, can we talk about how the best thing, the best thing, one or at least one of the best things of this f- current award season is Laverne Cox pronouncing Antonio Banderas. Wait, how did she do it? Antonio Banderas, genius. Picasso. It was just like nobody in this world is respecting vowels and consonants as much as Laverne Cox does. I love it. I also love, okay, this is very telling. The fact that my sort of peak hot for Antonio Banderas arrow was Desperado, um, Assassins, Never Talk to Strangers, these sort of like the bad movies. Desperado's not bad, but like the bad movies of his like early American crossover Whereas, like, Madonna's great phase for being hot for Antonio Banderas was his big Almodovar phase, which only goes to show that at least in the 1990s, Madonna was so much better at being a gay man than I was. And that is the unavoidable truth of my life. 
I think you were doing just fine. Listen, I was on my way. No, the winner of Best Kiss in 1990, this would have been the 96 MTV uh, Movie Awards, Uh because they straddle years. This is the year that Species won Best Kiss when Nata- <gasps> Natasha Henstridge. I remember that because I remember the clip tongue from the back that, of that ceremony head. and being like, how did they put that clip on TV? Yeah. They sure did, though, didn't they? You know what's really gross about that win is like that scene is super, like, I guess like she's avenging this, but like that scene is, that dude is real gross. <laughs> yeah, he is. Okay, so any last thoughts about how to make an American quilt before we move on to the IMDb game. Okay. Let's talk about the title, how to make an American quilt. First of all, I don't feel like they taught me how to make any quilt. Why is it an American? Quilt? Why it gotta be American? Because like, I don't get any sense of like Americana from this movie. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't get it. Unless it's like, maybe that's more ingrained into the novel. It does really feel like, I guess how to make a quilt is less impressive. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess if the quilt is a metaphor for, like, life or, like, a sustainable romantic relationship, then I guess it teaches us how to do that. Maybe. No, you're right, Um, though. It it doesn't feel like it's a little ambivalent on, like, a lot of the themes it's bringing up. Um, It does feel like the type of thing that is much more clearly defined and much more textured and characterized in a novel than. Because, okay. They got fucking Maya Angelou to be in this movie. Clearly, we're talking about a very popular novel, a book that would have been very popular with women. Um, yeah. Because how the hell else are you getting Maya Angelou in your movie? Um, Agreed. So, yeah, like this definitely, without having read the book, speaks to me as something that, like, maybe it was relying on a lot of people's relationship with the book to kind of stir up, you know, yeah, attachment to the narrative that was happening. But like, I, again, I think it is the gay brunch of movies. And with gay brunch, it's not like you're eating like wholesome food all the time. Um, Alfre Woodard is the mimosa. Everything else is just like the gossip and the drama. And then you have like bad pancakes. All right. You want to move into the IMDb game? Yes. I would love to move into the IMDb game. IMDb game. We play this every week on this Had Oscar Buzz. We challenge each other to name the top four titles that IMDb says that a famer, famous actor or actress is most known for. Um, we always give each other hints beforehand, saying if there's any voiceover work or television, try to stay away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Harry Potter because those float straight to the top and that's pretty damn boring. And once we get two wrong guesses, we give each other the years. And then from there, if we can't get it, it just ends up being kind of a free-for-all of hints. Yes, Joseph, indeed. would you like to go first, or would you like me to guess first? No, I'll guess first. Okay. So we mentioned that How to Make an American Quilt is a reunion of sorts, even though you never see them together on screen, of several cast members of Little Women, that being Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, and Samantha Mathis. One of the titular little women that is not reunited in this movie, also played by Samantha Mathis in an older version. We are talking about the younger Amy March, Kirsten Dunst. Joseph Reed, your challenge is Kirsten Dunst. Have we not done Kirsten Dunst? Oh, we have not. Okay. 
I don't know why I feel like we have. All right, anyway. Uh, I can look it up if you want. No, that's okay. I trust you. Um, Kirsten Dunst's interview with a vampire. Yes. We have not done Kirsten Dunst. I just looked at our list. Okay. I love that you are keeping a list, and I am fully, fully flying without wings here. Um, All right. We got interview with the vampire. I want to say Melancholia is one of them. Is that a guess? Yeah. Correct. Melancholia. Yes. All right. Here's where it gets tricky. Um, Does it, though? Well, I want to say a Spider-Man, but I don't know whether it's the first or the second one. I'm going to say Spider-Man 2? No. Spider-Man 1? Yes. Okay. So we've got three out of four. With only one wrong guess. With only one wrong guess. Does it bring it on? No. All right. What's okay, so you have two. Joseph, you're going to be really mad. It's 1994. That's Little Women. Yes, it's Little Women. I hate that you do that. <laughs> I don't mean to do it. You, you do just it never all the time. guess it. I feel like I'm giving it to you, but I'm like, oh, these other ones are interesting because I do feel like even though there's like a chapter of gays that are is like love Kirsten Dunst in Interview with a Vampire, like I feel like largely people kind of forget that she's in that movie and kind of forget about that movie, except for like people like us. And then I think Melancholia, I probably wouldn't guess it there, though I know it has a lot of fans, so maybe that's dumb of me. I think it's getting the benefit of being like the big movie of her later portion of her career that's getting all the search. It could also get the like, you know, clicks and pings from her can Best Actress win. Yeah. Though I do think it's full gay erasure that she is not on there for Bring It On. Yeah, I will agree with that for sure. Oh, Kristen Dunst. Also, Justice for Bachelorette, which is a fantastic movie. All right. Yay. All yeah. right. Who do you have for me? So I mentioned earlier in the podcast that um, I'm forgetting her name. Is it Jane Anderson? It's Jane Anderson, who wrote the screenplay for How to Make an American Quilt, had also written the screenplay for The Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio, and also It Could Happen to You, which is a movie about a cop who leaves a waitress a tip in the form of a lotto ticket, and that lotto ticket... Are you giving ticket... me Bridget Fonda? What's that? Are you giving me Bridget Fonda? I'm painting a picture. Oh, okay. First. Yes, I'm giving you Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda! Yes. Bridget Fonda plays the waitress. Rosie Perez plays the the wife of Nicolas Cage, who is the rival to Bridget Fonda. And I thought about picking Rosie Perez, but I'm picking Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda, where'd you go? Exactly. Uh, Bridget Fonda, single white female. Correct. She was just on there for Jennifer Jason Leigh. She's not on there for Bridget Fonda. That'd be a little insane to me. Um, Jackie Brown. Yes. Very good. trying to remember what she's in at this point um singles no and that's surprising because she's mm. that was a very i big feel like singles is not as remembered maybe yeah it's definitely as been we forgotten. sometimes think it is very of its time singles what's that lake placid okay fuck, fuck you for getting lake placid you know I love trash. Fuck you a little bit for getting Lake Placid, for remembering that she's in Lake Placid. Mm. Yes, correct. Three out of four. With only one wrong answer. Uh, she's in a lot of bad movies that I remember for, like, 
me because I am myself. Um, the I'm just only say person the one in that my I class who I remember is Betty White. Oh, yeah, because if I had a dick, I would tell you to suck it. Um, <laughs> fully, that line only exists so that we can hear Betty White say that. Yes, um, agreed. Gross. Um, I'm just going to remember the bad movie that I can remember off the top of my head and say The Road to Wellville. <laughs> no, it is not The Road to Wellville. So now you get years because that's two strikes. The year of your missing movie is 1998. So that's post Jackie Brown. Yes. Is it a simple plan? It is a simple plan. Who remembers that? I say this as I'm like, the road to Wellville. Guys. I know. I was going to say, you and don't I'm really like, have a leg to stand on. Who remembers a simple plan? Um, simple plan's a good movie. It's an Oscar nominee. It Sam is. Raimi. Um, okay, so fully when um, A Cure for Wellness came out, mm -hmm. remember how I was like, is this just scary road to Wellville? <laughs> and I think two people got that joke. But I think it is. I think it kind of it is. It is just scary, The Road to Wellville. Do you know what her character's name is in The Road to Wellville? No. Eleanor Lightbody. Uh, sure. <laughs> anyway, yes, good job getting four out of four. Thank you Honda. for the challenge. All right. That was a good episode. I really ended up liking talking about that movie more than I thought I would. Watching that movie through How to Make an American Quilt, I was like, I was disappointed. I wanted more from it. I was like, this movie just kind of sits there for a lot of the running It was very time. two steps forward, one step back for me. Um, but I enjoyed talking about it with you. It's a so difficult movie to discuss, as witnessed by my 30-second plot description, because like, there's a whole lot... Excuse me. There's a whole lot of like going on and there's a whole lot of like plot business but there's not a whole lot to latch on to like it's a very whelming movie it's a very whelming movie it's very whelming neither um, over nor underwhelming just whelming yeah yes all right i think you can quilt it in america yes we can God, American. Anyway, that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Christopher, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris V File. That's F-E-I-L. I'm also on Letterboxd at Chris V File, um, where you can find our running list of uh, this had Oscar Buzz titles, including direct links to episodes and IMDb game trivia stats. Um, I will try to update that this week, so hopefully it will be fully updated because I've gotten behind. Um, yeah, and you can also find me at thefilmexperience.net writing about soundtracks and other things. Huzzah! I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as the same username. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility, so quilt yourself a reminder to give us a little bit of a five-star review if you love us, which you should, because we love you. And so, when you write that review, please be smoking and writing in a French dialect. Yes. Oh, my God. Alfre Woodard, I love you so much. So much. That is all for this week. But we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's no lie. That's no lie. You never
moonlight. <laughs> These broke ass hoes don't know. Why did she do Maya <laughs> Angelou as Miss Cleo? I feel like that's maybe my only thing about Monet's. Wow. Is it felt like there was a little bit of like, there was a little accent to it. Call me now. There was a little bit of that. 